What up, Anchor? What up, Anchor FM? What up, Spotify? What up, iTunes? What up, the whole entire world? What up, the whole entire social media platforms? What up, Anchor FM episodes? I am Dre Wise, Dre Wise Conqueror, and today is uh, February uh, 28th. And it's a Friday, the weekend, everybody's um, getting off work, or going to work, leaving school, and doing what people do. Um, today is um, Friday, February 28th, and the year is 2020. And the time on my end, on Eastern Standard Time in Ohio, it's uh, 5.45 uh, p.m. And today I want to do an actual show about um, the food we eat. So I'm going to have an actual, actual, actual show. And I'm going to do like the usual. At my final uh, thought, I'm going to bring other people in, like uh, other YouTube uh, speakers about uh, commentaries, uh, news, or whatever. This could be an actual show. News, uh, sports, all that. On this particular Anchor FM episode by me, Drake And today's subject in discussion is about food that we eat daily that has that has that has effect on us in a positive in a negative at the end of the show donate donate excuse me donate 99 cent 99 cent 99 cent or more today on this Anchor FM episodes, Dre Wise, Dre Wise, Dre Wise, County Word. What up, Anchor? What up, Anchor FM? What up, Anchor FM episodes and Spotify and iTunes? I am Dre Wise, Dre Wise, Dre Wise, County Word. Now, Follow me on Instagram, my Instagram account, that is DreWise underscore countywer. What I mean by a countywer, a countywer is someone that conquers their, basically, their habits and come out of that and turn around and you countywer of that. Now, and follow me on my Facebook page that is Dre Wise Calculus, also where I demonstrate um, live footage of going live, exercising, and doing live streaming of subjects, topics, and more on my Facebook page, DreWise Calculus. Email me for business inquiries. That is Luca Darrell Seven at gmail.com. And also donate nine nine cent, nine nine cent, nine nine cent or more here on Anchor FM episodes. Dre to drop more than a half foot of snow, whipping up blustery winds, large waves around the Great Lakes, where I am right here. We're timing out there where the fresh stacks of snow could disrupt your travel plans right now on AMHQ. 
Welcome to AMHQ on this Tuesday morning. It is February 25th, 2020. It's Fat Tuesday. I'm meteorologist Jen Carfagno live in Chicago alongside meteorologist Stephanie Abrams and Kelly Cass who are in studio. We've got a very windy morning here right along Lake Michigan. I don't know if you saw my notepad fly down here into the mud. So we're going to talk about the wind, the lakeshore flood warning that is up here in Chicago, and then the snow that we are still bracing for in the Windy City. There's been a lot of changes in the forecast over the last, certainly 24 hours, but really over the last several days because this is a forecast that we have been following days in advance, this developing winter storm. And that's a key point to this winter storm. It is still developing. There's really two angles of it, a piece coming up from the south, a piece dropping in from the north, and the two really have to get together before we see this thing take shape. A lot has changed. A lot has changed over the past several days. Uh, when we look at just the forecast, one thing that we noticed even yesterday that the area of heaviest snow kept dropping further south based on the models. We've shown you what snow is still to come based on our forecast right now. We've got a zone of three to five widespread from northwest Illinois right into northern Indiana over into northern parts of Ohio, as you can see. But yesterday morning, the information that we had to work with based on one of our models, this is the American model, but the European model was similar in terms of placement, had a swath of very heavy snow actually squarely over Chicago and then up into northern Indiana and up into Michigan, a swath of 8 to 12 actually. And, you know, most models were similar in that. Uh, the afternoon run yesterday kept that bigger amount but dropped it further south. And so, again, that's the information that we're working with. This morning's run, you can see where we have some of the brighter purple colors showing up on the map, shows some of the bigger totals coming in across northeastern parts of Indiana and then into northeastern Ohio, western New York. And the lake effect is going to help quite a bit with that as well. So we certainly have had some places where you have a higher number this morning for your forecast snowfall amount, like St. Louis. You know, yesterday the forecast was for less than an inch. Today it's one to three. And I always say this about snowfall forecasting. Be accepting of changes. Be ready for changes here to really pinpoint exactly how much snow you're going to get, especially for a storm that hasn't quite formed yet. You really can't do it more than, you know, six hours in advance, Steph, because things are changing in the atmosphere here. As we know, it's a complicated system. So we're talking about that. Uh, and Seth, you can see the wind blowing my hair yeah. out this morning. I'm going to have to tie it back because uh, this wind is no joke and it's going to cause some of the biggest challenges for Chicago actually with the Lakeshore Flooding Works. And we'll come back to you and talk about that in just a minute. First, I want to show everyone the overview of what's going to happen with this system because again, there are multiple low pressures that are at play. And we have our first low pressure here, all right, that's uh, centered around Illinois. You have that moisture that's coming on up from it. And then you have our upper level disturbance off to the west. Now, What's going to happen is this trough, there's actually even a little more energy coming in from Canada. These two systems gang up and move east and basically overtake the current low pressure that we have. We'll have cold air that gets pulled in behind us, so that will be a big story too. And then you have that wind going over the unfrozen lake, and so therefore you're going to get some big-time waves, and Jen's going to focus on that in just a minute. But here's the big picture. There is surface low number one, number two, and again, remember, some energy from Canada. These two teaming up and causing a new low pressure at the surface to form. But underneath a low pressure aloft, that's cold air, that low pressure aloft. So that allows snow to fall, also gives us some convection sometimes, and that's why we do have that one to three inches here throughout portions of the plains. Now, as this all congeals together, again, you will see this start to fill in as we head through the day because the storm system is still developing. Those advisories stretch anywhere from Missouri all the way up through Detroit, and this is how it plays out through your day today. So it looks like your morning commute will be pretty okay here into the Chicagoland area 
It looks like the evening commute actually will be the worst. Also into Detroit, St. Louis. Looks like it'll be warm, then dropping down into cold. But there's that snow for you with a few heavier bursts in here. Uh, and it's all the way through our Wednesday morning. So it's a little bit slower. All right. So Indianapolis looks like Wednesday morning will be tough for you as we look into northwestern Ohio and Detroit, too. Really through the day, we hold on to it into uh, the thumb of Michigan, if you will. Uh, if you've never noticed that, that's what they call the thumb of Michigan because it looks like a thumb on the mitten. All right. Here's how much snow is still to come for us. And again, uh, you do have a few little bursts here of that five to eight inches, but otherwise huge swath of one to three and three to five inches. But as Jen was talking about, it's that wind potential along Lake Michigan. But Jen, even those winds, the heaviest winds or the strongest winds, I should say, haven't started to kick in even just yet. Yeah, oh, I know. I checked I checked it at hair this morning, just as an example. And winds are, you know, sustained at close to 20, gusting maybe a little bit more than 25. But we're expecting 20 to 30 mile per hour winds sustained with gusts even higher than that. And they're going to be coming from the uh, north-northeast here. So that's going to bring a fetch right into Chicago. I've got Lake Michigan right behind me and very concerned about overwash and, of course, erosion in areas uh, where that lake comes uh, right up there to the the land as opposed to just the uh, the walkway but we're concerned about the erosion the lake levels are very high we are looking actually at record high levels i checked some of the latest stats and um we're 39 inches higher than the average for february six inches higher than the record there's very little ice there's only nine percent ice here across the great lakes here um, overall so the fact is that we've got these you know unfrozen lakes and we've got this fetch of wind for at least 24 hours maybe 36 that's why there is a lakeshore flood warning that's in effect the winds right now again very strong you see in the direction coming in from that north northeast and we're going to be in that through today you know as long as the slope is tracked uh, to our south until it moves off to our east we're going to keep this wind direction and that's going to keep that very persistent onshore flow anywhere that you see these big waves crashing there is a danger the danger is going to be that you'll have of course some coastal erosion but the other danger is onlookers you know the, people are enamored by big waves like this but onlookers could be swept in so you want to keep your distance from the lakeshore when you have a situation like this we're in the the, uh, the wind and the waves as we get through today and into tomorrow the lakeshore flood warning continues through tomorrow afternoon um, around six o'clock but then we'll see the winds turn around to the northwest and we'll keep focus then over on to the michigan side and into Indiana for the bigger waves as well. But for us here into Illinois, our waves are going to be today, tonight, and then a good chunk of tomorrow, Kelly. So the wind, obviously, and the waves are going to be the concern here um, along the shoreline, but then we do get into the snow by this evening, Kelly. I want to cheer everybody up, Jen, on this Fat Tuesday. We do have some nice weather to talk about, or at least reflect on what took place yesterday in the Northeast. Let's take a look at an amazing sunset over the harbor in Seabrook, New Hampshire. This was on Sunday evening, actually. Tonight's sunset might not be so pretty because we do have clouds already in the area and rain moves in as well. But look at that glorious sunset. Just all the colors. Very beautiful. Yesterday was a beautiful day in the Northeast. Hopefully you got outside to enjoy it. Maybe took your lunch break outside in Central Park. 62 degrees. That's springtime weather, right? In New York City, 64 in Boston, even 60s down the coast towards Philadelphia and D.C. But we did notice those higher clouds, those cirrus clouds moving in from the south and they've been thickening up overnight while you were sleeping. And now we
we've got this. This is our forecast, all the green representing that chance for rain from Albany to New York City. Temperatures are still mild, just not as warm as yesterday. And then, yes, some of you will get a little bit of snow action, especially as you get toward the north. And the higher elevations, of course, playing a role as well. So plenty of moisture flowing northward over the next couple of days as our developing storm system moves in from the west. And that's going to do a couple of things. It's going to bring in the colder air eventually, but the timing is not so good for the northeast coast if you are a snow lover, because here it's going to remain rain. However, the interior sections of the northeast, you will be dealing with some of that snowfall. In fact, already the National Weather Service has gone ahead with the winter storm watches across upstate New York, back towards southwestern New York State, and even much of Vermont, New Hampshire, and Maine, looking at a winter storm watch, because it really depends on the track of the system and how much we get. But if you get six inches or more, that's when we see those warnings getting issued. And in fact, we could certainly see that across the northern parts of New York State. Look at Maine, New Hampshire. How about a foot to a foot and a half of snow coming your way? Uh, notice how the big cities along the coast, not so much, pretty much zilch, actually, with all the rain coming through. Uh, that changeover likely to happen for the interior sections. And of course, as you gain elevation, you'll have a better chance at some of that snowy weather making our way from Wednesday into Thursday. If you've ever found yourself saying, I just couldn't help myself when you ate too much of the wrong food, you just might be right. A lot of people put a lot of work into making sure we keep on eating. As our health reporter Kelly Crow discovered, it's a highly competitive, highly secretive industry with one goal, food that is simply irresistible. They're trying to increase their share of, of your stomach and increase the amount of profit they're making off the food you eat. I would to the point that it hurt to move, and I would just lie in my bed and wish I was dead. These companies rely on deep science and pure science to understand how we're attracted to food and how they can make their foods attractive to us. There's science behind that crunch. Yogurt feels that way in your mouth for a reason. The food industry is even researching the connection between the taste receptors on your tongue and the corresponding chemical reaction in your brain. The result? Carefully engineered combinations of salt, sugar, fat and chemicals deliberately designed so you can't eat just one. Michael Moss spent four years investigating the science behind processed food. I was totally surprised. I spent time with the top scientists at the largest companies in this country, and it's amazing how much math and science and regression analysis and energy they put into finding the very perfect amount of salt, sugar, and fat in their products that'll send us over the moon. A search through a database of scientific papers and food industry patents reveals the extent of the science behind food engineering. Chemistry, physics, biology, all commandeered into the service of making profitable food. Here's a process for enhancing the cheese flavor without the cheese, where starting materials are proteins and fats, which means the amount of expensive cheese can be reduced substantially. 
that if they can replicate that chemical reaction that may happen on your tongue or an aroma, uh, they can simulate the taste of something without it being at all real. Bruce Bradley knows firsthand what goes on inside the food industry. A former executive at several large food companies, he's now a writer and industry critic. There were certainly times that I felt uncomfortable or troubled by what I was doing. And I think that's ultimately, you know, one of the reasons why I left the industry. And then you see trends like obesity and health issues uh, that are increasing, mainly driven by the food that we eat. It was hard for me not to just uh, uh, take a, a more thorough assessment of what I was doing. The food industry is extremely secretive, competitive, and proprietary. It took years and hundreds of interviews before Michael Moss could finish his book. This was like a detective story for me, getting inside the companies with thousands of pages of inside documents and getting their scientists and executives to reveal to me the secrets of how they go at this. What did he find? That the food processing industry rests on three pillars, salt, sugar, and fat. Well, these are the holy trinity of processed foods. And again, when they hit the perfect amounts, they call it the bliss point for sugar, the mouthfeel for fat, the flavor burst for salt. They know that their products will be irresistible. Salt, sugar, and fat in combinations nature never intended. And increasingly, scientists agree there is evidence that these highly palatable foods can be addictive. Yeah, well, for me, I'll be spooning or reaching or whatever, and I'll be thinking, I've got to stop, I've got to stop, I've got to stop, and my, you know, I just, I just don't stop. Her name is Pat, and she's a food addict. I was desperate when I was a food addict. It was really, really uh, devastating, and I felt powerless and ashamed, and it was horrible. Her kitchen is a battleground, every meal a challenge to remember that for her, even a taste of sugar can set her back. Seeing food will trigger it, uh, advertising for food will trigger it. These foods are so, so addictive, so appealing. Every cookie is crammed with joy. There are many food addicts who say that um, even long after the food stopped causing us joy, long after it started causing us misery, we still couldn't stop. How about one of those chips? Just one. So it becomes hardwired and it's very hard to overcome. Bet you can't eat just one. And while the industry hates the word addiction more than any other word, the fact of the matter is that their research has shown them that when they hit the very perfect amounts of each of those ingredients, they'll send us over the moon. Their products will fly off the shelf, we'll eat more, we'll buy more, and as they are companies, they will make more money. We're activating those limbic structures. Francis McGlone is a neuroscientist. Brain system. As part of a BBC program, he put a British chef into a brain imaging machine and fed him chili. Every 38 seconds, Ashley had a drop of chili oil squirted on his tongue. And watched as the heat from the chili peppers triggered a release of feel-good chemicals in the brain. So the consequence of that, that low level of pain is that it floods the brain with its own natural opiates. Francis McGlone was a pioneer, one of the first neuroscientists to work in the food industry. He spent 10 years doing neuroscience for Unilever, one of the world's largest food companies. As a basic neuroscientist, I was able to 
look at the mechanisms that basically drove preference for various types of food. Using neuroscience, Unilever made headlines with this finding. Ice cream tickles the brain. Just one spoonful lights up the happy zones of the brain in clinical trials, the company reported. This is the other part of the body that fascinates food scientists, the mouth, the way food breaks between the teeth, the pressure of the bite force, the sound of the crunch. It's partly it's the noise, um, and the noise, of course, amplified by the fact that your jawbone is connected to your ears, um, and you really hear that, that crunch quite loudly as you bite. But it's also the physical um, requirement to chew on something and to, to crunch it just distracts you. It pulls your mind onto what you're eating. Chris Lukers is a food industry consultant who helps companies come up with foods that are what he calls moorish. In other words, make you want more. They want you at the end of each product to reach for the next one and put it in again. And they often achieve that by having a very intense taste hit right at the front of the mouth and then it dies off very quickly. And so by the time you've finished each mouthful, you're looking to refine that taste which you've lost. The shape of the food is also important. Chocolate should not have sharp edges. Absolutely. We're looking for chocolate to be comforting, to be a really pleasant, lovely experience in the mouth. Um, melt is a very soft, soft experience. Um, and if it's got sharp corners, uh, you're really spoiling that and actually setting the consumer on edge slightly before they get the melt. Food scientists know what it takes to trigger the brain to stop eating. They call it sensory-specific satiety. And that's an expression that says when foods have one overriding flavor, if it's attractive, it'll be really attractive to us initially, but then we'll get tired of it really fast. And so these companies make a concerted effort to make their foods not bland, but really well blended. And why can't you stop at just one? It's called vanishing caloric density. Vanishing caloric density applies to those things like Cheetos that melt in your mouth. And what happens is then that your brain gets fooled into thinking the calories have vanished and you're much more apt to keep eating before the brain sends you a signal, hey, you've had enough. Welcome to the Sensory Sciences Lab at the University of Guelph. Can one person from each come here for a minute? This is teaching the students how to set up a sensory test. So all the students in this class are learning the basics of conducting sensory evaluation research because it's not as it's not as simple as eating a food. They're different in an ingredient, and what we're looking for is to determine which one is preferred or accepted by people. So um, in this case, it's actually a different sodium level. So which one did you like better? I like the second one better. The salty one? The saltier one, yeah. Because these products must be able to sit on the shelves for months, many of the ingredients have nothing to do with taste, but act as preservatives and chemicals to control the appearance and texture and a series of ingredients known as flavor enhancers to trick the brain into tasting something that isn't there. There's tremendous amounts of money spent behind creating tastes and smells that feel real, but in reality are completely artificial. Because without flavor enhancement, no one would eat it. It would taste horrible. You would just, you know, you'd want to spit it out. 
One food company made a special batch of crackers for Michael Moss to taste without any salt at all. It was a god-awful experience tasting those things. Normally, I can eat Cheez-Its all day long, but the Cheez-Its without the salt, I couldn't even swallow them. They stuck to the roof of my mouth. A tour of the grocery aisle reveals that something is changing. Suddenly, cookies boast health claims. Chips have whole grain and fiber. If the food industry can find a way to market it and make money off of it, I'm sure they will. But if it long-term is decreasing the amount of food that they can sell, I don't see it as being a, a, an avenue that they'll go down. So whether lower in salt, sugar or fat, higher in fiber and grains, containing real fruit or baked with real vegetables, you will be back for more. The food industry depends on it. Kelly Crow, CBC News, Toronto. soda lover, you may want to rethink your diet. The study published in the Journal of American Medical Association earlier this week links 10 foods with deaths from heart disease, strokes, and diabetes. Some of the good foods that we're not eating enough include nuts and fruits. The bad foods overeaten by thousands include processed meats, just like bacon. Cardiologist Dr. Kevin Campbell joins me now on set. Dr. Campbell, so it's clear, we know this. Diet hugely affects our health. What, can, what else have we gleaned from this study? You know, it goes back to the wonderful Mediterranean diet where you eat lots of good nuts, fishes, olive oils, and you avoid a lot of the red meats and other high sugar content type things. And I think that's what it really boils down to. And that study is very consistent with what we found. So where does this study take what we already know about diet a step further? You know, it really shows us that if we eat the right things and avoid the things that are not good for our heart, that it can make a big difference. The big thing in this study, though, is they linked it to almost 50% of the deaths from heart disease, diabetes, and stroke, which are major killers in the U.S. today. When you look at those foods, who were the major, what was the biggest offender? Salt. Added salt is a huge problem because it raises our blood pressure. It puts increased risk and stress on our heart. And it also damages our blood vessels through stretching them to you know, high pressure levels. So salt is something that we have got to do a better job eliminating in our diet. What foods should we be incorporating? You know, it's always like your mother said, the fruits and the vegetables are very important. Nuts, actually, you know, when you get hungry during a busy day in the newsroom, if you just have a handful of nuts, yes. it can satiate you and it's also very helpful. It has lots of good things for you. Uh, Matter Floor Director knows I have a big bag of almonds that I keep That's below perfect. the desk here throughout the day. I wish that they taught diet and nutrition to children in school. I wish my kids could take that class. They don't even do this in medical school, you're saying. When I was in medical school, we had very little instruction on nutrition, and I think it's so key because as a society, we are obese, and our doctors and you know our parents and everyone involved in our lives needs to really push the importance of diet and exercise, and nutrition education is critical to that. I want to turn now to another study that was published this week. It found that fewer overweight Americans have been trying to lose weight. Why do you think that is? You know, we've had to find a real balance between, you know, accepting body types of all different sizes and shapes and also being healthy. And I think this study showed that more and more Americans aren't interested in losing weight. But what I would say to this is be the best and healthiest you that you can be, no matter what your body type or body shape is. Is there a way of gauging why more obese Americans feel they don't really need to lose weight? You know, I think a lot of it is, I think many of these folks feel, you know, really unempowered and almost hopeless yeah. because if you say, I need to lose 75 pounds, that's a, a terribly big goal. Yeah. But if you say, I need to get off the couch and walk, 
you know, a mile three times a week, or I need to eat better, or just do something, and then break it up into tiny segments, uh, you know, a pound here, a pound there. That's doable. So for people who know they need to lose weight, what is that baby step they could take in this next week that can make a difference? You know what? If you're someone who doesn't do anything from a physical activity, get up and walk around the living room. Walk to the mailbox. I always tell my patients, just move and feel very good about that. And then the next day or the next week, try to do just a little bit more and feel good about that. Just keep moving is my advice. And the one thing on diet that they could change? The one thing on diet is make sure that you stock your house with lots of healthy snacks, fruits and vegetables, things of that sort. Plan your meals in advance and cook them on the weekends so that when you're busy, you're not rushing off to fast foods. You're having a good, well-prepared, nutritious meal at night. Food planning really makes a difference. It does. It? It's a great family activity. I'm not a bad mom because I bought those Oreos, did I, for the lunch? Everything in moderation. Everything in moderation. Okay. Even Dr. Oreos. <laughs> Dr. Kevin Campbell, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Today by Dr. Mark Hyman. He is the author of Food, What the Heck Should I Eat? Which is something I ask myself on a daily basis, <laughs> usually with the uh, refrigerator open. What the heck should I eat? Or walking to the grocery store. Yeah, yeah. And well, I think if you're asking yourself that question, that's when you're heading towards frozen pizza. If you're in the grocery <laughs> store at that time. Um, so this is a really interesting book. It really sort of breaks down a lot of the myths that we've been hearing about food and tells you what the how accurate the science is and how it is, is and tells you what to eat. Yes. Um, but I thought to myself when I got this, I've read so many books on food. There's you no, know it all. I know it all already. Yeah. Um, and I'm sure a lot of other people are going to think that when they see this on the bookshelf. Why did you write this book? Well, I've been practicing nutritional medicine for 30 years and treating people with food. And I've been studying nutrition for 40 years, and I'm that old. <laughs> and I realized that people are totally confused, that people here competing things. Eggs are bad, eggs are good. Meat's bad, meat's good. Coconut oil's bad, coconut oil's good, it's bad again. It's like so confusing for people. That. Right. And so how do you make sense of it? How do you know how to interpret the science? What do we know in 2018 about what's true about what we should be eating? And it's actually not that complicated. And you've got so many competing, paleo, vegan, keto, mm -hmm. low fat, high fat, low carb, high carb. It's like enough to give everybody a headache and give up. I feel like you've been reading my food diary. You just listed <laughs> off everything that I've probably tried over the last 10, 15 years or so. Um, in the beginning of this book, you talk about the fact that we've forgotten that food is medicine. Yeah. Tell me more about that. Well, we, we actually had this thousands of years ago with Hippocrates who said, let food be thy medicine, medicine be thy food. But now we think of food mostly as energies, calories, right? Yeah. Calorie restriction is the way to lose weight. You want to eat less, exercise more, except there's really no evidence that that works because we've been getting fatter and fatter. Mm -hmm. And we're getting that advice from our doctors, our nutritionists, from the government, from food industry, which should make you suspicious. And the truth is that food is actually far more than calories. It's information. It's like instructions that talks to your body with every single bite. So it changes your gene expression. It regulates your hormones. It changes your immune system, can create inflammation or reduce inflammation. It affects your microbiome, affects your brain chemistry, literally with every single bite. So it's like code that programs your biology. And if you're putting junk in, you're going to get junk out. That's why disease happens. So food, it turns out, is probably one of the most powerful drugs on the planet. We can reverse type 2 diabetes in a few weeks, changing people's diet, but there's no medication that can do that. Right. Um, you know, we're living in a time where we have access to so much information, almost mm -hmm. too much information. Mm -hmm. um, when I saw that thing about medicine, uh, food being a medicine in your book, I thought, 
it, it made me think about what medical students are learning about food. Nothing. What are they learning? Nothing. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, 25% of, of schools have the required amount of nutrition education in medical school. And of that, it's usually about, like, nutritional deficiency diseases like scurvy or mm. malnutrition like kwashiorkor or marasmus, which is stuff we don't see. Mm-hmm. We see over-nutrition. Over-nutrition. Over, over, we're overfed and undernourished. Right. So we basically have too many... Calories, not enough nutrients. And you see people who are obese, even people who have gastric bypass, little kids, they're massively nutritionally deficient. Um, so is that part of the problem? Our doctors aren't being trained the way yeah. they should? And what else? Because we're, we're sort of battling systemic. Right. There's a number of reasons we're so confused. First, yeah, yeah doctors don't learn anything about nutrition. Two, the food industry funds a lot of research. Right. So if the food industry funds a study, it's 8 to 50 times more likely to show a benefit for that product. The Dairy Council funds a study on milk, guess what? It's a health food. If mm-hmm. the soda industry funds a study on soda and obesity, guess what? There's no link, right? right. Then, of course, we have science itself, which is confusing, because a lot of nutritional studies are done on populations over a long period of time, but they're not cause and effect studies. They just show correlation. So every day I wake up and the sun comes up. They're not related, mm-hmm. but it's 100% correlation. Mm-hmm. So we can see, oh, eating meat seems to cause heart disease. Well, why? Because when you look at the population who was studied at the time, they actually thought meat was bad. So people who ate meat didn't care about their health, right? So they weighed more. They ate 800 calories more a day. They didn't exercise. They didn't eat fruits and vegetables. They didn't take their vitamins. They drank more. They smoked more. Of course, they had more heart disease. It wasn't the meat. And when you look at studies, for example, where meat eaters and vegetarians both are shopping at health food stores, they both have their risk of death reduced in half. So that's just an example of confusing science. And then, of course, you get the government, which is heavily influenced by lobbyists. Like I said before, there's half a billion dollars spent by 600 lobbyists for the farm bill, which should be called the food pill, which governs our food stamps and many other things. And and that's what's influencing policy. Our guide, dietary guidelines are influenced by industry who has uh, un, you know illegitimate relations with the Right. People on they have the their committee. own agenda. They have their own agenda, yeah. So, it's not about food as medicine for them. No, I mean, we spend $7 billion on food stamps a year. If you look at junk food for food stamps, 46 million people have food stamps. Yeah. It's probably a, by a factor of 10 more than any other category of food, the junk food as a whole. And soda is the number one line item at $7 billion a year, which is 20 billion servings a year the government pays for for the poor. Which is just sugar, which and is, water, and then nothing. They, yeah, and then they pay for it on the back end with Medicare and Medicaid, right. which is bankrupting our country. So. It's, it's sadly very industry influenced in terms of why we have our dietary policy. So all those reasons lead to this confusion. Right. So the book breaks down the foods and the yes. science related to it. What and you got say? it in categories. It's really clear. Yeah. Here's the food. Here are some of the myths. Yep. Test yourself to see yep. if you know. And then here's the science. Here's where they got it right. Here's where they got, got it wrong. Yeah. And here's you read the, the book. He- <laughs> yeah, and here's what the heck you should eat because it's so easy to read. Yeah. Um, you talked about, and I, we talked about this earlier, but just flipping through the book, you talked about milk. Yeah. And one of the questions that I got wrong was about the, the number of adults being lactose intolerant. Yeah. I thought lactose intolerance is just a handful of people. Mm-hmm. It's not true. No, globally, 75% of the world's population is lactose intolerant. So the anomaly is being lactose tolerant. It's mm-hmm. usually northern European people who can tolerate more dairy. But the dairy we're eating isn't the dairy we ate, right? right. We First of all, until we're agriculturalists about 12,000 years ago, nobody ate dairy. You wouldn't be milking a saber-toothed tiger, right? <laughs> yes, <laughs> so, definitely not. <laughs> no. uh, but we ate heirloom cows. They had less inflammatory forms of protein in them, calcasein. Mm. And now we he- have these feedlot cows that are all hybridized. They're all the same kind of cow, and there's 
and 70 by one bull practically the whole country. And you've got high levels of inflammation. And milk has been linked to uh, cancer, like prostate cancer, autoimmune disease, like type 1 diabetes, digestive issues, as well as inflammation, acne, eczema, allergies, all sorts of issues, not even helping bones. We think it's great for strong bones, but actually that's not true. Mm -hmm. Uh, So we had all these got milk ads. Well, guess what? The government funded part of those, the National Health Promotion (laughs) Dairy Board. Right. Actually funded a lot of those ads with the dairy industry, and then the FTC said, no, no, you can't say that, because there's no evidence that milk protects against fractures. And skim milk, which we make all our kids drink, low-fat milk, that actually leads to more obesity in kids because they don't get satisfied. Well, yeah, the chocolate and strawberry milk, but the actual dairy has uh, no fat if you have skim milk, and that makes you hungry. You eat more. Right. Yeah. Um, So let's break down some of these popular diets. Uh, Let's look at sort of the high-protein diet. That's the Atkins or, you know what I'm talking about. It's very, very popular now. Um, So you eat meat, vegetables. What are the pros? What are the cons? Well, I think the highest-trending diet is the ketogenic diet. Right. People think of it as Atkins. But I think you can do a plant-rich ketogenic diet and not be heavy on the protein. In fact, heavy on the protein is probably not a great idea mm-hmm. because that actually turns into sugar if you eat too much protein mm-hmm. in your blood. So it turns out that the fat is actually what our bodies need to thrive. So we probably need about 50% of our calories as fat, which makes people sort of hair stand on end. But the truth is we need, you know, by calories and by volume, we need mostly plants. So 70% of your plate should be vegetables, and, and that doesn't have very many calories, right? It's uh, 21 cups of broccoli has 750 calories. Right. So you're not going to eat 21 cups of broccoli. But red meat's okay? So meat, let's talk about meat. Yeah. So there's really three issues. Moral, if you're a Buddhist monk, okay, that's fine. Environmental, and yes, our way of factory farming animals is biggest contributor to climate change. So we should really not be doing that. And third is the health effects. What about grass-finished meat? What about uh, sustainably wild meat? We know about the data on meat that doesn't show us that it's harmful. For example, like I said, you have these studies that were done over many years that showed a link between disease and, har- and meat. But mm-hmm. the truth is that the meat studies were done on populations who, who didn't think meat was healthy uh, and they would be avoiding it. So the reason they didn't get disease when they avoided meat was not because they weren't eating meat. It was because they were doing other healthy things, like the healthy user figure, exercising, eating fruits and vegetables, and so forth. And so we really have to look at the science carefully, and there's really not a lot of evidence that meat is harmful. It's a great source of protein, antioxidants, and What about cholesterol? Yes, what about cholesterol? So saturated fat is the boogeyman, right? So that's like a huge issue in our society because we're supposed to eat low saturated fat to reduce cholesterol. But did you know that breast milk is 25% saturated fat? That, that that actually the governments and, and the American Heart Association said we could have 10% or 5% saturated fat, so maybe we should ban breast milk. I don't know. Uh, yeah, but, I, uh, many babies are crying out now, but, not just about that. No, and, and the dietary guidelines are based on sort of ignoring huge amounts of data that the National Academy of Sciences recently sort of showed. And, and now we know that actually saturated fat doesn't cause heart disease. That in you look at 17 large reviews of all the science showing there's no link between mm-hmm. dietary saturated fat and cholesterol. And, the, and, and sorry, dietary saturated fat and heart disease. It does raise your LDL cholesterol, but it also raises the good one and it lowers triglycerides. Mm-hmm. So we have to rethink our whole approach to this. Let me, okay, another trending diet, vegan diet. Yes. Um, you know, increasingly I keep it's reading about how it's sort of the fastest growing yes. or choice or flexi diet or whatever, yeah. but people are leaning towards vegan. I read in your book, yes. you need animal protein. Yeah. I mean, a lot of vegans, their hair's on fire yes, when they hear that because totally. they yeah. insist that you can get yeah. all the protein you need yeah. from a plant. Is that true? Oh, to get what you need in a six-ounce piece of fish or chicken, yeah. you need three cups of beans. And that's a lot of beans. Mm. And 
it comes with 100 grams of carbs. Now, beans aren't terrible, but they're, they're also low in an amino acid called leucine, which is critical for making muscle. And if you don't have enough of that, you can't make enough muscle. So as you age, you need more protein. There's good evidence about that. So what's the best quality protein? It's animal protein, but it should be organic, sustainably raised, grass finished. And that's more expensive for sure. Mm-hmm. But as more of us do that, we're going to actually end up causing um, an increase in the availability and a decrease in the price. Local or organic? I mean, Or both? I mean, ideally both, but you know, th- those are hierarchies of choices, right? First, get people off processed food. <laughs> Then eat real food, and then you can kind of go up the hierarchy of the quality of the real food, right? Because the quality of a feedlot cow and the quality of a grass-finished cow are very different in terms mm. of the omega-3 fats, the nutrients, the lack of hormones, antibiotics, lack of pesticides. All so it's things. worth reading those labels if you're it buying is. chicken. It's worth that. Yes. It's worth finding out if they're grass-fed or whatever. Well, chickens only grass, but yeah. <laughs> I have a lot to learn, doctor. That's why you're the doctor. <laughs> That's okay. But yeah, cows eat grass. And yeah. I think you know. I think most of our diets should be plants. I agree. We should have a plant-rich diet with small amounts of sustainably raised or harvested animal foods, whether it's chicken, fish, or meat. Mm -hmm. And we should be eating a lot of good fats. And that's pretty much the diet. It's low starch and sugar. And you can have a very high starch and sugar vegan diet, right? Chips and soda is a vegan diet. I know someone who went vegan, ate nothing but French fries for like three years. And it depends on your metabolism. Some people do better. Some people don't. We're all different, right? So some people do fine. But others, you know, gain weight and, you know, have issues because they're eating a lot of starch, grains and beans have a lot of starch. So you actually answer the question, what the heck should I eat with a diet? I thought it was called the pagan diet, but it's not. It's no. a pagan diet? Pegan. Pegan diet. It's, it's actually not even a diet. It's just a set of principles right. of what we should be doing, right? And I, I was on a panel once with a couple of friends of mine. One was a paleo doc, one was a vegan cardiologist, and they were fighting. And I'm like, listen, guys, if you're paleo, you're vegan, I must be a pegan. And it was a joke. <laughs> and, then I, and then I realized, wait a minute, there's some common things uh, that they share in terms of their, their perspective on food. And there's like nuances that we can come through. So I basically, it's, it's mostly plant-rich diet. It's lots of fats, good fats. It's, if you're going to eat animal foods, have the, the, the ones that are sustainably raised or harvested or grass-finished. Mm-hmm. Lots of nuts and seeds, small amounts of grains and beans, mostly like low-gluten grains, or if you're eating gluten grains, don't eat wheat, have rye or barley because they're less uh, changed in terms of some of the, the practices mm-hmm. we do for wheat. And don't eat junk. I mean, like... I always joke, like, if you wouldn't have it in your cupboard, you shouldn't have it in your food, right? Mm-hmm. People don't have red dye in their cupboard or, you know, maltodextrin bottle that they pour on their food. I mean, these are all things that are added by the food industry to enhance flavor, taste, consistency. And they're not things we should be eating. They're food-like mm-hmm. substances. They're not real food. Um, how should, you know, people get really emotional about food. They do. Religion, um, politics, and nutrition are basically the most inflammatory topics. Seriously. You know, what do you want people to know if they're just having a hard time making those good food choices? I think what, if people are really stuck, people understand that certain foods in the food supply are addictive. So uh, sugar mainly and processed foods are, are designed to be addictive. You know, I, I met with top leaders in the food industry and they explained to me how they have taste institutes where they hire craving experts to create the bliss point of food and heavy users. I mean, these are their internal terminology about creating addictive foods and they harvest taste buds and put them in the lab and then they test different things against them to create the most pleasurable experience. And we know biologically that it affects your brain like cocaine or heroin or alcohol and that we can map that out. So if you are really stuck and addicted, you need to sort of do a detox. (laughs) 
And I have a 10-day program in the book, which is essentially getting you off of all the junk, resetting things so you can start again. And then you don't want it. Like I walk by a bakery with all these croissants and muffins, and it doesn't even look like food. Like why would I eat that? Oh, that because it's a rock. Like why would I eat that? Right. And it doesn't call my name anymore. I used to. Very good. Well, the book is Food, What the Heck Should I Eat? Dr. Mark Hyman, thank you so much. It dispels the myths. It gives you the science and gives you a little bit of a roadmap so you can pick the right foods. What up, Anchor? What up, Anchor FM? What up, Anchor FM episodes and Spotify and iTunes? I am Dre Wise, Dre Wise, Dre Wise, Count Now... Follow me on Instagram, my Instagram account, that is DreWise underscore CountyWord. What I mean by a CountyWord, a CountyWord is someone that conquers their, basically, their habits and come out of that and turn around and you you CountyWord of that. Now, and follow me on my Facebook page that is DreWise Calculator, also where I demonstrate um, live footage of going live, exercising, and doing live streaming of subjects, topics, and more on my Facebook page, DreWise Calculator. Email me for business inquiries. That is Luca Durrell7 at gmail.com. And also donate 99 cent, 99 cent, 99 cent or more here on Anchor FM episodes. Dre Popeye's Fried Chicken, Pizza, Hot Dogs, French fries, and ice cream sundaes. These are things millions of people eat every day. They're also things LeBron James has said no to a thousand times over. Just imagine what he'd look like if he chased calories as hard as he chased rings. If you follow LeBron James on Instagram, you probably think you have a good idea of at least one dish in his diet. But as delicious as they are, no one is surviving off tacos alone. At least no one who looks like LeBron. Me? Yeah, I can survive off tacos. So, what is LeBron eating on every day other than Tuesday? All athletes' eating habits are constantly under scrutiny. Whether they eat like Michael Phelps, or they're sticking to a strict diet with no carbs or sugar in sight. The public is always interested to see what elite athletes are eating, or not eating, to stay in insane shape. James strikes a balance between a Phelpsian smorgasbord and a health nut's ideal meal plan. As your mom always used to tell you, breakfast is the most important meal of the day. And LeBron James almost always listens to his mama. James usually starts his day with a meal full of protein and fruit. Breakfast consists of egg white omelets, berries and yogurt, and possibly some gluten-free pancakes. That sounds, uh, not terrible. Who doesn't like pancakes? A lighter option is a simple whole wheat bagel with a touch of peanut butter. This gives James some energy for morning shoot-arounds without weighing him down. On to the first of many snacks. LeBron scarfs down some more fruit and a rare artificial element, protein powder. Yogurt, apples, and almond butter are also on the menu. Before his game starts, Braun focuses on low-fat proteins and more carbs. Sensing a pattern here. Veggies, whole wheat pasta, and chicken breasts are pre-game staples. But this isn't enough to power him through an entire game. 
he refuels at halftime. Basically, like a sports car, even James can only perform at a high level for so long before he requires a trip through pit row. He also requires premium fuel. He can't just eat or drink anything at half. We've seen what happens when guys get lax with that rule. LeBron skips the Henny and opts for either the NBA favorite PB&J or, you guessed it, more fruit. It appears, if we're being honest, LeBron James is in love with fruit. When the game is over, James usually unwinds with a protein shake. If he wants to continue the healthy trend, it's more chicken breast, broccoli, or possibly a salad. But when James wants to treat himself, he can really cut loose. It's time for the healthy stuff to go out the window. Dinner entree can range from a little surf and turf, filet mignon and lobster tail, or some classic chicken parm. Maybe James heads over to Blaze Pizza, which he's invested in, and enjoys one of the 16 topping pizzas he loves. Maybe he keeps it simple and downs a bowl of his favorite cereal, Fruity Pebbles. Me, I'm a Captain Crunch guy, but to each its own. LeBron loves his Fruity Pebbles so much, he designed a sneaker inspired by the sugary goodness. Anyway, dinner might be over, but the James diet is most certainly not. And it won't be until Bron caps his night off by enjoying a fine glass of red wine. He might not be the Laker nicknamed Vino, but it's a good bet he's the Laker that drinks the most of it. Bron's Instagram is loaded with photos of wine, accompanied by the hashtag Vino Chronicles. So, while the all-time great may eat enough times a day to make a hobbit flush, he keeps a pretty clean diet. In fact, he once went over nine weeks without eating sugar dairy, or carbs to cut weight in the offseason. LeBron is almost always in peak physical condition. When you couple his workout routine with his diet, there is no reason to believe he'll do anything other than remain playing basketball at a significantly high level. And when that eventually ends, he'll look good for his post-NBA life. Thank you guys for watching. I'm your trusty narrator, Frank Smith, and you can follow me... Karen here from AM Hoops. We're taking a look today at LeBron James's diet during the NBA season. And it is more than just Taco Tuesday, believe it or not. Taco Tuesday! Yes, LeBron exists on more than tacos. And he eats on days other than Tuesday. We'll have a look at his evolution of his diet throughout his career. And what he eats on a typical game day. If you like this video, we looked at other NBA superstars and what their dieting philosophies are, and we've got the link down there in the description. Also, go ahead and subscribe for weekly videos for real NBA fans here on AM Hoops. LeBron James is one of the most obsessive athletes, not just in the NBA, but across sports, about his body. He spends about $1.5 million a year on his body alone. So naturally, you'd want to know what one of the most obsessive dudes about his body puts into his body. And his food philosophy has changed over the years. A couple things that haven't changed are his height. He's 6'8", and he lives an NBA lifestyle, which means he's super active, especially on game day, so he burns a ton of calories. And at 250 pounds... LeBron's weight has fluctuated. We'll talk about that. But at 250, which is a good medium weight there for LeBron throughout his career, he needs to take in about 4,500 calories in order to sustain that weight. 4,500 calories is a ton, but not all calories are created equal. In fact, earlier in his career, LeBron was a lot looser about his diet. In the 2012-2013 season, he got off to a slow start, and ESPN reporter Brian Windhorst, who's really tuned in and clued in to LeBron James, said that he was in some of the worst shape he had ever been in his life. 
So, in 2014, LeBron posted this now famous photo where he almost looks too skinny, especially on the right there. And so, of course, this took the internet by storm. People wanted to know... What is he doing? What is he eating? And he told reporters just that about a month after posting that picture. What he said was, I had no sugars, no dairy, and I had no carbs. All I ate was meat, fish, veggies, and fruit. That's it for 67 straight days. And at this time, his typical meal looked like this. Lobster salad with asparagus and mango chutney, as well as an arugula salad with chicken, fruit, and nuts, topped with olive oil and lemon vinaigrette dressing. Of course, it helps when you have a food philosophy to have a personal chef, which is one thing you see with stars, the level of LeBron James across sports. They've got a personal chef to help them stick to their meal philosophy and diet, as well as elite discipline, which an athlete, the level of LeBron James, clearly has. So LeBron dropped weight at that time. He was super skinny. Nowadays, when we look at LeBron with the Lakers, he's a lot more filled out. He's a lot more muscular, and he has found a healthy balance between super skinny LeBron James and some of the worst shape of his life LeBron James to what he looks like today. And today, this is what his dieting philosophy generally looks like. LeBron really broke it down to Business Insider. He said, before competition for me, it would be like a chicken breast and maybe a little pasta or a salad and some veggies will do. Another staple of his philosophy during the whole season is around sugar. So during the regular season, LeBron actually allows himself some refined sugars. But during the postseason, it's one of the things he cuts out completely, and he breaks down his philosophy like this. When it comes to the playoffs, sugar kind of slows down the process of recovery. And whoever can recover the fastest from game to game is going to put themselves in position to be successful the next game. And if there's anybody who knows about recovery game to game and the grind of the playoffs trying to get those 16 wins, it's LeBron James. This philosophy has been curated over eight straight runs to the NBA Finals. Now, for an exact game day for LeBron James, we actually know what that looks like. Meal to meal. And we know because he told it on the Tim Ferriss podcast. So, of course, it starts with breakfast. LeBron eats an egg white omelet with smoked salmon, gluten-free pancakes with berries. For lunch, whole wheat pasta, salmon, and vegetables. Pre-game, peanut butter jelly sandwich. Post-game, a protein shake, plant-based protein powder, almond milk and fruit. And for dinner, chicken parmesan with a rocket salad and a beautiful glass of Cabernet. Okay, so a couple of things you notice there. And the first one is that peanut butter and jelly sandwich. It is universal on almost every single NBA player's diet and on their menu. Somewhere you're going to find peanut butter and jelly, and it all traces back to Kevin Garnett in 2011 with the Celtics. KG loved his PB&J. He introduced it to the C's locker room, and the thing has spread like wildfire around the NBA, and LeBron has one too. The next thing that you notice is that post-game protein shake. It's got plant protein, but his trainer, Mike Mancius, told CBS Sports that his shakes are designed around replacing lost fluids. So they're rich in carbs, and they help refill levels of glycogen. And the last thing you notice, it sticks out, is the wine. A beautiful glass of Cabernet or whatever LeBron happens to be drinking that day. It's one of his favorite things to post on social media. You'll see all different kinds of wines on LeBron's IG. In fact, his old teammate Kevin Love said, LeBron has a supercomputer level brain 
when it comes to wine, and he even admitted himself he drinks wine pretty much about every day. So unlike a Tom Brady, LeBron James includes alcohol in his diet even during the season. But other than that, it is a fine-tuned diet for a fine-tuned body here in his 17th season in the NBA. Support AM Hoops and click subscribe. Don't miss a weekly NBA video. Miss this game because of the groin injury, or, or would you buy on maybe it's a resting thing with the playoff push approaching? In the words of Ed Lover, come on, son. Come on. Come on, come on. Like, here's the problem with LeBron right now and the groin injury or whatever, resting. He came out and said when he was asked about load management because across town, across town, across the hall, like they share a building, Kawhi's been trolling him since before the season started and and just destroying him on the court the two times they played in high-profile national games. He's been asked, Kawhi's been criticized for load management, right? Finals MVP last year. He's about to be the finals MVP again this year. I don't want to hear about, like, oh, you can't load manage. You know how many people come up to me talking about Kawhi's disrespecting the game? Why? By get, raising his chances he's going to win a title? He's disrespecting yep. the game? This is stupid. But anyway, LeBron was asked about it. And I think LeBron saw a little opportunity. And he said, hey, if I'm healthy, I play. Hold up. Is this the same dude who lost 30 pounds on a paleo diet a couple years ago and wasn't the same and then took two weeks off and rested and came back diesel and started balling again? Like, is this the dude who has totally managed the way he's played defense in different seasons? By the way, wisely. LeBron is a genius and a brilliant basketball player in terms of managing his season and has been in the finals every year except for last year precisely because as he aged, he load managed in different ways. But he's asked about it. I think he saw a little chance to take a little shot at Kawhi because he hasn't been able to do it on the court. And he said, if I'm healthy, I play. Okay, so now what does he do? When they realize, the Lakers realize, we got to load manage this guy, we're trying to win a title. I'm a Lakers fan. I want LeBron to load manage. I want him to be fresh for the playoffs. So, But now that he said that other thing about, if I'm healthy, I play, you can't just say we're resting him because he's image conscious. It looks right. hypocritical. Right. So they come up with a groin injury. No, I don't believe it. I, don't, I think they're just load managing. Even I... Um, I, I'm going to believe him because I'm going to respect LeBron James enough to give him the benefit of the doubt. The fact of the matter is that he's given us no indication that he doesn't want to play regular season games. Uh, he's averaging 34 34.9 minutes per game. He hasn't missed a game since January 11th. Uh, you know what? And not only that, that groin injury is real because it's, it's been something that has existed in the past. And so for me, it's a matter of integrity when you talk about LeBron James missing a game and just coming up with an excuse to miss a game. I think that he's earned the right way. If he wanted a day of rest because he was just fatigued or tired, um, I could see him simply saying so. And that being that, because he's not somebody who's missed a slew of games. That's not what his resume says. That's not what his history says. Now, there are a plethora of dudes in the, Nas- in the National Basketball Association that if they, had, if they missed a game and had that excuse, you can raise your proverbial eyebrow and say, hey, what's going on here? Am I really, really supposed to believe that? But when it comes to LeBron James, who re- who's known and is renowned for taking religious care of himself, I think he deserves the respect and the benefit of the doubt. And I want to bring up that paleo diet that you brought up. If you recall years ago, Max, he wasn't himself. He was weak as hell at one point because he lost those pounds yeah. and because everything had been compromised. So what I'm saying to you is that 
you're talking about him literally going away, disappearing for a couple of weeks, and then coming back. Because yeah. that was something that was very, very glaring. But in this particular instance, if you're just sitting there taking a game off or whatever, if he says it's because of a tightness and groin or whatever, I'm going to believe it, brother. And to, and to LeBron's credit, he's put his money where his mouth is so far this season. Of the 57 Lakers games, Always. LeBron has played in 54 of them. Mm-hmm. Matt? Um, I think he put his foot in his mouth a little while back saying, if I'm healthy, I'm going to play. But as I think we've touched on, if anybody deserves time off, it's LeBron. So whether you want to call it a growing injury, a back injury, rest, whatever you want to call it, he deserves it. He's played 54 out of 57 games. He showed his dominance in year 17 at the age 35. But the Lakers know for them to be the best team that could be in the playoffs, LeBron has to be 100%. So whether it's – I see him probably missing four or five games in this last stretch just to make sure because they're coming down the stretch. They have it clinched. And, you know, rest him because they know when they're really going to need him is once a playoff start. Matt, Matt, let me keep you on point here. We all know he deserves the rest if he wants it. But the real question is, do you believe him when he and the Lakers say it's a groin injury? That's really the question that we're asking here because everybody knows he deserves time off if he wants it. But do you believe him when he says he's tweaked it a little bit and he was ailing? I think so, because growing hamstrings, quads, those are all nagging injuries that take a long time to heal, and any little movement can, right. can can aggravate that. So if it's growing, I believe it's growing, but like I said, whether it's a growing, whether it's rest, he needs that, it at this point. That's why it's a great excuse, because it's plausible. I just want to read something to you. Here are LeBron games played. And by the way, this is smart. He plays deep into the playoffs every single year. He every plays year. in the Olympics. He has every a year. whirlwind schedule. So just, I don't know, last bunch of years are going reverse chronological order. Last year, 55. Before that, 82. 74, 76, 69, 77, 76, 62. That's decent. It's not like Iron Man, but it's decent. Then all of a sudden he made it a point that if I'm healthy, I play every game. Why? Because Kawhi is load managing and it lets Mm -hmm. him give a contrast. Here's the thing about load management, Stephen A. It's basically preventative medicine. You know, what you're trying to do is avoid severe fatigue, which can also lead to injury, particularly at an advanced Uh, stage when you play so many minutes. Matt, with you being the resident player here, do you agree with that? Do you think that they should be careful and possibly resting, managing LeBron in this stretch to the playoffs. 1,000%. And if you look at just the wide scope of everything, there, he may have the most miles ever <laughs> for an NBA player. You know what I mean? Coming in at 18 and for everything Max mentioned, he's always been an all-star. He's always taken his team deep in the playoffs. He's always been an Olympian. He's always played more minutes than everybody. So at uh, you know, year 17, age 35, I'm surprised he plays has played 54 out of 57 games because mm-hmm. of the fact, knowing that there's a lot of uh, miles on those tires, but also knowing that this is a special Laker team and they have a chance to win a, a championship this year. So I'm not going to be surprised if he misses another four or five games, maybe six With games. With different excuses? I don't even care what the excuse is. Right, so in other yeah. words, so, but let's see what Matt's doing. You're acknowledging, like, they're going to have to come up with right. reasons. Right, and, and some of them are going to be excuses. Well, well, is this one? I would say, yeah, probably. But I'm like Stephen A. I will respect the fact that he's well, had a previous injury with the growing, and, I, you know, every, everyone handles injuries different, and, and growings are a and, nagging injury. So, like I said, whether it's the growing or not, he needs some rest. Thanks for watching ESPN on YouTube. For more sports highlights and analysis, be sure to download the ESPN app. And for live streaming sports and premium content, subscribe to ESPN+. What up, Anchor? What up, Anchor FM? What up, Anchor FM episodes and Spotify and iTunes? I am Dre Wise. Dre Wise. Dre Wise. Count you. Now, 
follow me on Instagram, my Instagram account. That is DreWise underscore countywer. What I mean by a countywer, a countywer is someone that conquers their basically their habits and come out of that and turn around and you conquer you conqueror of that. Now, and follow me on my Facebook page that is DreWise Calculator also where I demonstrate um, live footage of going live, exercising, and doing live streaming of subjects, topics, and more on my Facebook page, DreWise Calculator. Email me for business inquiries. That is Luca Darrell Seven at gmail.com. And also donate nine nine cent, nine nine cent, nine nine cent or more here on Anchor FM episodes. Dre Wise. I know now that our sleep quality is more important than our diet and exercise combined. What it does wow. for our health and also literally our physical appearance. Hey everybody, welcome to Health Theory. My mission in life is to pull people out of the matrix by helping them build an empowering mindset. But the reality of personal empowerment is that while mindset is critical, the body and the mind are so interconnected that if you don't get your health in order, you will never unleash your full potential. To that end, with this show, I'm bringing on the world's most important thinkers on a wide variety of health-related topics so you can learn how to maximize your potential. Today's guest is the best-selling author of Sleep Smarter, host of The Model Health Show, one of the most popular and longest-running podcasts on health and fitness, and he's one of the top nutrition experts in the country. Additionally, he's the founder of Advanced Integrative Health Alliance, a functional medicine clinic, as well as someone who's been featured in Entrepreneur Magazine, Men's Health Magazine, and countless other major media outlets, including ESPN. He's also a frequent keynote speaker for numerous organizations, universities, and conferences. So please, help me in welcoming the man who cured his own incurable degenerative spine disease, Sean Stevenson. Sean, thank you for being here, man. Very grateful. Grateful. So I'm super stoked to have you. We've flipped before where I had a chance to be on the other side of you asking me questions, which was a lot of fun. And now diving into your world. And I think virtually anybody starting an interview with you would start with the sleep stuff. But I want to flip it. I want to talk about sprinting. Mm. We're coming around the corner. Mm. We hit that final stretch. Yeah. And your hip breaks. Yeah. What happened? And then what were the, the knock-on effects? Wow. You know, this was... Make sure that this is this is incredibly important. At track practice, I'm coming around the, the curve onto the straightaway. And I broke my hip. And there was no trauma involved. Nobody hit me. I didn't fall. It just broke because... You know, cut to a few years later, I finally get diagnosed with this degenerative bone disease. And at the time, being 16 years old, you know, you have the hormones of like a, a Greek god, you know, so, you know, you get the kind of standard of care, you know, take these NSAIDs, stay off the leg, you'll get better. And I did, but nobody stopped to ask the question, how can a young man break his hip just from running? Mm. And once I finally got this diagnosis, it was, it felt good to know what, what the issue was, but also it uh, kind of sent my world into a tailspin. Yeah, that it's pretty crazy that it broke. 
it's really crazy that they didn't ask why it happened. Exactly. But the thing that I find most interesting in the story is that you decide to ask the question, what are my vertebrae made of? Yeah. And taking that ownership, which you must have been like your late teens at that point. Yeah, so this is cut to, so this was 20 years old when I finally get the diagnosis. And I'm in college at the time. And, you know, I went from like a chronic kind of nuisance of a pain to chronic debilitating pain over the course of a few weeks. And this is important for, and I always like to share this whenever I can. My very first physician, you know, he put my MRI up for me to see, and he told me that I had the spine of an 80-year-old man. You know, I had two ruptured discs, and my uh, vertebrae were deteriorating. And so when he says this to me, you know, I'm immediately like, okay, so what do we do? Like, let's fix it, you know? And he's like, you know, I'm sorry, son, there's nothing you can do about this. And what happened, and I know you've heard about this several times, the placebo effect is something where you get a positive injunction from somebody who's an authority figure and you proceed to have certain symptoms happen or changes in your physiology. And a lot of people don't realize this, but placebos are actually 33% effective. That's the power of the mind. But what he did for me was something called a nocebo effect. This is giving somebody a negative injunction that something bad is going to happen and your, physi and your physiology begins to change from that. And so... I spent the next two and a half years in uh, a lot of pain, a lot of drugs, uh, prescribed and over the counter, <laughs> and just laying on my floor, you know, because not only was this painful, but it was embarrassing. You know, I went from kind of being one of the cool guys to like, I'm walking around campus with a back brace and just, you know, really um, kind of losing myself. I saw different doctors. I, you know, went through the whole gamut of why me? Why did this happen to me? Why won't somebody help me? and really playing this victim role. And it wasn't until I actually decided to get well that everything changed. And most people never do that with their bodies, with their health, with their relationships. It's mostly like, I'll see what'll happen. Wishful thinking, I'll give this a try. But when you really decide something, you're cutting away the possibility of anything else but that thing. And I'm a big student of lexicon. And the word decision is from the Latin day, meaning from, and kaidea, which means to cut. So when you make a real decision about something, you cut away the possibility of anything else but that thing. And so I decided no matter what, I'm going to get well. And that sent me, and it wasn't like, you know, the clouds parted and like the sun shined <laughs> and everything was okay. I'm a very analytical person as well. And so I put a plan together. I decided, and now it's time to do something. You know, number one, put a plan together. And that plan entailed three specific things. I changed the way I was eating, which giving my body the actual raw materials that it needed to regenerate me was important. And I was on what I called the tough diet at the time, which is a typical university food. So I'm no joke. I'm eating pizza daily. Uh, my vitamin C is coming like from Sunny D. And um, so it's no wonder I was made out of like, I was made out of terrible stuff, you know. And so I asked this really important question, which you mentioned, okay, if my spine is deteriorating, if my bones are deteriorating, what, what is it actually made of? And that set me down this incredible path of discovery because what we hear in kind of common culture is, you know, if you want strong, healthy bones, drink milk. Mm. And come to find out, calcium is one of the least important things. And even getting it from your diet, it doesn't exactly work in your body the way that we're marketed to, to because it's marketing. And so I found out that things like silica, magnesium, sulfur-bearing amino acids, all these things are in some cases even more important. So I start to get all those nutrients in my body through food, primarily once I really got it, like food is going to... And was that... So how did you get that? Because that's where... Yeah. It's, it's becoming a lot more popular now, but when you would have been going through this, 
People don't really think like that. Yeah. And I mean, this is around the time I was thinking if I was eating licorice and it was fine because <laughs> it was fat free, right? And yeah. somebody said, well, I think if you eat too much sugar, it turns into fat. Yeah. And like that didn't even make sense to me. I was like, how would that be possible? Yeah. Especially, I'm, I'm from the Midwest. And so like there was like a wild oats market. Whole Foods just opened. And so I think it's really important the environment. You know, when I had some friends, they would take me to the stores and then you know, that gradually got me into like, not just the supplement aisle. And so I just began to flood my body with all these important nutrients and also hydration. Your disc in between the vertebrae and your spine. And you would think like, if I want these to be more hydrated, I need to drink more water, but it doesn't work like that. Your disc get hydrated through a process called remote diffusion. And so literally it's like the last place in your body that gets nutrients and hydration. And so you needed to really super hydrate yourself. Make sure your body has an abundance, like an overflow of nutrients to make sure they get to the right place. So that was number one was nutrition. Number two was movement. And so exercise is really about two main things. Number one is assimilation. And I came across some research that showed that um, when you actually are doing walking while taking on specific supplements for your bones, your bone density goes even higher, all right? Because that walking helps your body to assimilate. Number two is elimination you know, elimination of toxins. Because your lymphatic system, which, especially when you're getting healthier, your body is trading out a lot of stuff. And there's a lot of dead cells, there's a lot of metabolic waste products. And so how do you get that stuff out of your system? You have to move because your lymphatic system doesn't have a pump like your cardiovascular system does. And you actually have four times more lymph than you do blood. And so that movement was so important in healing. And here's the problem is that oftentimes when you have, you know, an injury or an issue like this, we're told not to do anything. Mm. That's often the worst thing you can do because things will start to atrophy. If you don't use it, you lose it. And so I just started to, and it's, of course, if anybody's dealing with like an acute problem right now, like take a day or two off, but I encourage people to do what you can in an intelligent way. And so for me, I could barely walk properly. And so I started off on a stationary bike, progressed to treadmill. I started jogging a little bit. Eventually I picked up the weights again. And, um, you know, just to jump really quickly to the end of the story, I had lost 28 pounds in the next six weeks. Wow. And the pain I've been experiencing for two and a half years was gone. But the third and most important part, now I know, was the rest and recovery, right? It seems like I was resting a lot by not doing anything, but I, it, it really wasn't. You know, it was a lot of uh, suffering. And my greatest struggle was at night going to bed mm-hmm. because the pain was so bad it would wake me up. And so I was on you know, uh, various medications. And I basically had to drug myself to not wake up. And so it was like a pseudo sleep. And it would take several hours before I really like felt like I was awake. And um, the things that I was doing during the day, changing my lifestyle, showed up for me on the pillow. Because what I really wanted to um, promote for people is this understanding that if you're not sleeping well, you're not healing well. And this is where your body releases the vast majority of human growth hormone, of the, you know these various anabolic hormones, reparative enzymes. So when my sleep got improved, I got better so fast. And so I shifted all my coursework over to biology and kinesiology and uh, eventually opened a clinical practice. And um, you know, oftentimes I would get those people who they were told there's nothing you can do. You, know, you have type two diabetes, blood sugars 400 without metformin, there's nothing you can do about it. And consistently seeing these folks be able to naturally regulate their blood sugar, oftentimes get off their medications, insulin, things like that. Because where there's a will, there's 10,000 ways. But it's also understanding that, first of all, just acknowledging that it is possible. Mm. 
And that's what I love about your story, man. That like hearing you tell that the, and I've heard you quote the Einstein quote before that the most important decision anyone will ever make is whether or not they live in a hostile or a friendly universe, which a, most people don't recognize that as a, a choice or a decision. Yeah. Um, and then two, that from that, then people will take action because they believe that they will get an outcome. How did you come to that decision that you live in a universe that's going to work for you? Yeah. When the doctor is the one telling you multiple doctors, in fact, because you said, look, I was, you know, conscious of going and getting multiple opinions. This wasn't one guy. Yeah. They all said the same thing. So how in the face of that do you make that decision one day? I am going to get better. I think it's really valuable to understand the, the benefit of rock bottom. You know, like for me, after getting those, um, uh, the words from the other doctors that, you know, there's nothing, you know, the same diagnosis, I had a choice to make. I'm either going to buy into this and continue to live as a victim, or I'm going to do something about it. At least try, you know. But for me, I'm, it's beyond try. Like, it's the decision, right? And so how I got to that place really was, you know, I had nothing to lose at that point. You know, um, I can continue as things are and continue in this suffering. And I think it was just a matter of like realizing that, and I think this is really important, even though there are other people in our lives that might care for us, they don't walk in our shoes. You know, so when the physician would tell me that, you know, there's nothing that I could do, I knew, like, I, it hit me, like, they're not laying at home thinking about me. I'm thinking about them and why they can't help me. I have to really take responsibility for myself. And it's just basic logic, you know? If somebody's saying they can't help you, believe them, you know? And so I made the decision, like, if, if I'm gonna get better, I need to do it, you know, I need to take action. It doesn't mean I'm not gonna have great people to support me along the way, but, you know, as Jim Rohn says, no one can do your push-ups for you, you know? So I really had to take action, and it became, you know, and also I, I wanna share this, is that if you really want something, you should make a study of it. You know, especially if you don't necessarily have a blueprint for a successful relationship, make it a study. If you're not doing well with your finances, make it a study. And how, what does that look like for you? I generally go right to the medical journals. You know, I dig through there. And, I, and another quote from Einstein is that, you know, if you can't explain it simply, you don't know it well enough. Mm. And so I really strive to make sense of these things that can be incredibly complex but for no reason. It wasn't until I really honored my own voice and my gift in helping these things to really make sense for people. And so I'll dig around in that data and um, that's the first thing I'll do. And then I'll look for some anecdotal and evidence as well, you know, people telling stories about it. But here's something else I do. I also, and this is the scary part, I also look at the problems with stuff. I also look at the things that are against what I might be believing. Most people don't want to do that. Like we believe this particular supplement is going to work and it's the best thing you know since sliced bread and then there's these other things that say hey wait a minute this might not be the case you have to have the courage to look at this too and come to an uh, a truly well-evolved thought construct you know and we all have that opportunity but we tend to just want to believe what we believe and look for things to affirm that you know and you got to be careful with studies that do the same thing and who's funding the study as well so i really get to that level most of the time in my research it's really interesting to me how, and look, like you said, the, look at the benefits of rock bottom, but it's really interesting to me how early you came to a lot of this, and I find how people tell their own story to be fascinating beyond all measure, and the opening of your bio 
says the beginning, the first half of my childhood was spent in an idyllic suburban neighborhood. And the second half of my childhood was in the rough and tumble inner cities around gangs and drugs. And you said the power came from both places and it, it really helped me understand perspective. How much of that, if at all played into your ability to sort of see through the trappings of everyone telling you it can't be solved in a way that I, you say it's just logic, but I think most people fall prey to that and they live there for 60, 70 years. Yeah. So how much of that mindset that you got from that sort of dual beginning do you think played into it? And that really hit an emotional chord uh, hearing you say that, you know, um, that initial environment was really, it lays the foundation. Well, before the age of about seven, we're in like a theta brainwave state where a lot of things kind of get deeper into our psyche and our subconscious, our programming. And so it's really important, especially for, for parents, you know, and people who are just, uh, that can be involved in kids' lives to really understand how impressionable they are. And so I really got a great formatting, kind of formatting disc from my grandmother who really kind of instilled this greatness she instilled the value of education. I loved learning. Like, I love the process of learning. And so I really picked up early on that you don't want to just learn stuff. You want to become good at learning. And when I shifted my, my residency, you know, going from this very protected, uh, safe, loving atmosphere, you know, I'm in an environment where, um, you know, there's a lot of abuse, you know, physical abuse towards myself and my two younger siblings. Um, you know, abuse with my mother and stepfather and the fight, you know, physical fighting. You know, holidays were not like they are now, like get-togethers and family fun. We know the holiday is going to be, police are going to show up, you know. That, that environment also taught me something really, really valuable, which is, you know, even though things aren't going well, even though we're, we're short on money, there's always a way to figure it out. No matter how bad things look, we're going to be okay. So that really was a powerful seed and combine that with the the sense of uh, greatness, the sense of the value of education, the sense of there's always a way to figure something out really helped that that moment of insight to take place of that decision, that, that moment of decision. And this is the first time I've articulated this, but that's really how those two things come together. Dad, I'm stoked that you shared that. That's... Um... It's so powerful and in taking you as a whole and watching your show and watching you on other people's shows, there's this incredible zen-like quality to your delivery, to your mission, to what you want to do. Like everything about it is, is so even keel, right? Because what I find with people that make that transition is it normally breaks them. And one of the things that I'm most intrigued about in life is, and we were just, I have the chills, we were just talking about this before we started rolling camera, where you were saying with schools, right? Do you go to one ultra-tailored, or do you go, that's going to be the hardship where my kids have to adapt? And I don't know what's better, because the number of people that are broken by the inner cities, the, the percentage has got to be absurd, right? Yeah. In 80, 90, I, it's just crazy. Yeah. But the people that make it. The ones that find that center, whether it's to be self-centered or not, they find that sense of self. When you said that, that really hit me. That finding that sense of self, not letting the outside world dictate who they're going to be. Like now all of a sudden adversity is not such a big deal because you've got like that compass inside of you and you know where you're going. That feels to me um, very appropriate for what you've become known for, which is sleep. 
which even your own publisher was like, uh, write a diet book and you'll be (laughs) huge and famous and we'll all be rich. And you were like, but that's not the truth that needs to be told. Um, Did that play in? Like, was that a moment of Sean being, knowing who he is and what he's trying to do and he's just going to get to that end no matter what? Mm. You know what? Wow. Yes, that definitely was. You know, I I don't want to cut corners. I wanted, you know, it's, um, integrity is a big word for me. And I wanted to take righteous action. You know, this was, this is all bigger than us. You know, the impact that you're making, the legacy that you're leaving, you know, is so powerful. And we're part of like a big change that ha- that's happening uh, with our culture overall, you know. And I knew that this particular topic is, and me being a nutritionist, like I was all like, food matters, food first, food is the most important thing. But... In my practice and seeing people coming in that, you know, we've got these folks over here, you know, 80% of the time are able to reverse type 2 diabetes, heart disease, get off their lisinopril's and all this different stuff. And then we've got this category of people who just like literally sometimes would ironically kind of keep me up at night. Like, what is wrong? Like, I'm doing all these things right. Are they lying to me? And then it wasn't until I started to ask people about their sleep that it just like it changed everything. And this was about six years ago. And so then, and here's the key, I can't just tell people they need to sleep more. You know this, like people don't want to change that much. Like we want change, but we want to be a little bit, right? (laughs) And so I found clinically proven strategies that are super easy to implement, almost things that can happen on automatic to help them improve their sleep quality, right? And once we did that, it's like the floodgates would open for people, you know, have been struggling for sometimes, you know, 15, 20 years with their weight, finally the weight comes off, you know? And seeing people struggling with heart disease or high cholesterol, you know, the so-called bad cholesterol, um, and seeing those numbers finally get regulated once we got their sleep optimized. And I knew that this was an incredibly important part of the conversation that was left out. And as we'll talk about, I know now that our sleep quality is more important than our diet and exercise combined. But what it does wow. for our health and also literally our physical appearance. Fascinating stuff. How much more fat you lose when you get optimal sleep. It's, it's insane. That's a bold statement. So walk me through what are some of the, um, the just core benefits that I'm going to get, assuming that I'm sleeping suboptimally. Like why is that a problem? Since that's probably one of the most celebrated like – things like when you get a little sleep people like champion you normally i'd sleep five to six hours a night with no alarm okay i haven't set an alarm in 15 years so that's just that was my cycle um i go to bed early very consistently my diet is on point my exercise is on point and so i'd wake up feeling awesome yeah and so i thought this is cash money but because i don't set an alarm that my sleep cycle will change. And right now I'm getting like seven to nine hours out of nowhere and super consistently. And I literally have no idea why I'm warmer now. So I used to be freezing cold at all times. And then at the same time that my, and I don't know, correlated, causative, no idea. um, I've started being warmer while I sleep and then during the day. So what are like the core components of sleep? Was something bad happening to me or, or <laughs> less than optimal when I was yeah. only getting six hours, even though I felt good? Yeah. Um, any correlation between the, the heat oh, and the listen, extra sleep? There's, there's, for, there's a lot to unpack there. Number one, uh, what's so interesting is that you, you were doing something 
exceptionally right as far as what the research shows with improving your sleep, which is you are going to bed kind of consistently a little bit earlier than other folks might. And so what we call what we call this is this anabolic window or what we call money time sleep. And this is generally between the hours of 10 and 2 because it's more lined up with your natural melatonin secretion. So if you go to sleep during those times, you actually spend more time in the deepest, most anabolic stages of sleep. And you tend to produce more human growth hormone than other folks. So you are already winning with that. This is why you have a tendency to feel better even if you're getting less sleep because I, this isn't called sleep more, right? It's sleep smarter. And there are many people who sleep you know, eight to nine hours and they wake up feeling like straight up you know, hot garbage, you know what I'm saying? And they're just wondering why. It's because it's the quality of sleep. And when I say quality of sleep, what does that mean? Let's break that down. So your sleep is regulated by changes in your, in your brain waves. It's really fascinating stuff. And we still don't know really what sleep is. Trying to define sleep is like trying to define, um, you know, when Forrest Gump is like, life is like a box of chocolates. Sleep is like pretending to be dead. We don't really know, <laughs> right? But we do know the changes that happen in the brain. We cycle from kind of a normal waking state with, with gamma, beta. Um, we're probably in beta right now. We move to alpha, theta, delta is where the deep anabolic dreamless sleep takes place. And we need all of them. And there's a certain percentage we spend in each that helps to rejuvenate our mind and bodies. And if you optimize certain things, you'll do it more efficiently. One of those gear shifts, like if you think about your body like this kind of manual transmission, is melatonin. Like people hear about melatonin as a sleep hormone. It just helps your body to efficiently go through your sleep cycles. And if your melatonin is suppressed by various things, you know, I'll share a couple, then you're not going through those efficiently. And you can wake up feeling like a pinata after the party the next day, even though you're spending all this time on the mattress. So that's number one. Number two, there's this interesting process called thermoregulation. There's a natural drop in your core body temperature at night to help facilitate sleep for all of us if things are running properly. But what was fascinating, and I shared a study about this, is that uh, they tested insomniacs and everyone in this particular clinical study all had too high body temperature at night. It would not go down. Mm. And so what they did was they fit them with these thermosuits, right, that lowers their skin temperature, not even their core temperature, just one degree, and virtually eliminated all the symptoms of insomnia. Whoa. Ambient can't do that, right? And it's as simple as paying attention to how your body temperature influences your sleep. And so with your body temperature changing like that, it's kind of feeling more of an insulation. As a result of having more sleep, there's a ton of different things that could be correlated there. So I'm not going to say that the sleep is a causative factor, but it's really interesting how your body does change in accordance to sleep. There's a natural rise in your core body temperature as the day goes, uh, as, I'm sorry, as the night goes on that helps to kind of wake you up. Um, so what I did want to share, though, when I said that kind of bold statement in the beginning, when we're talking about how sleep influences your body composition, I think everybody needs to know this. There was a, this study really blew my mind, and this was done at the University of Chicago. And they took people, and they put them on a calorie-restricted diet, kind of typical stuff, again, I'm taught in college, to see the impact on weight loss when they're sleep-deprived or getting enough sleep, right? So they put the people on this particular diet, monitor everything. One phase of the study, they're getting eight and a half hours of sleep, right? And then they track all their metrics. Another phase of the study, same exact diet, same exercise. They don't change anything else, but now they sleep deprive them and they take away three hours of sleep. So now they're getting five and a half hours of sleep versus eight and a half hours of sleep. Now, my thought on this, 
my final, final, final thought on this Anchor FM, Anchor listeners, Spotify, the world. My thought on this about the food um, we eat has a negative and positive effect on us. And also the sleep has the, the quality of sleep that some people don't get. But sleep is very important because sleep has get getting good sleep. Getting good sleep. Getting well sleep is basically a positive effect on our health. Now I do agree when it comes to what the um the guy was saying about um sleep, getting sleep. Is better than diet. In a way, I do agree. But I like to say this to clear it up so you can understand. Now, food is one thing. The food that we eat is very important. The food that we eat is very important when it comes to the choices of diet to, you know, maintain our health. Okay. Now, I'm going to talk about this. The good food that people do not want to get into because some people wants to eat nothing but poor, bad, unhealthy food. Okay. Now, when it comes to the food, okay, food that we eat is very important because the food that we eat has a negative and a positive effect on us in many ways. Mental and physical and also spiritual. Now, I'm going to talk about this. The food that we eat, world media, the food that we eat, that we have areas of food that they sell on the shelves. Okay? You have fruits, you have vegetables, you have meat. You have uh, uh, candy, you have cookies, you have food out there, okay? Now, the good food that people, not highly people, want to get into eating better, better, having a better, healthy eating diet, have a better eating habit, okay? Why is that? Because people so focus on, um, they so focus on, what tastes good and what the sight of the food that individuals see as an advertisement of what looks good, of the color, like mm, it feeds back into your mind of signals in the brain of areas in your mind. Now, the food that we eat is very important. That what you put in your body is going to come out. Either in a period of you doing number two or it shows up of how you look of you growing into obesity of enlargement of cellulite. Now, food is very important because when in your religious book, again, the Bible, the Bible, the Quran, whatever, it always talk about the food that you eat is very important. Now, 
when you eat better, you will think, have better thoughts, and you will think better, have a better attitude, and you will have a better, a better way of feeling good. And when you eat better, your body function much better. The saying is, if you treat your body right, your body will treat you right. So people don't understand that when it comes to that when you eat better, it, it, it will help you to one, concentrate better, think better, and feel better. And your body will function a lot, a lot better than when you just sit around and eat junk. Okay? Now, eating negative, eating poor will cause you to think poor and basically your body of your physical body will turn out to be poor and negative. <clears throat> Understand when you eat better when it comes to the mindset of thinking. That's why in America is one out of four adults suffer from mental illness. That's one. Poor eating causes poor thinking thoughts. Also, when you eat wrong, you will attend to behave wrong. You will have a, a negative attitude. You will have a negative vibe. You will, you will not even, even function correctly. So eating the right, prop, the right proper diet that they put out to the world of people to have the decision to what to uh what is more valuable you know but majority people go by taste so the food that we eat has a negative and a positive effect on us as human beings that's why me as a vegetarian I I'm more plant based eating vegetables and fruit and and dairy and basically uh uh let's see I eat beans so I don't eat meat I kind of don't I kind of disagree with the doctor because he feel like eating meat is okay it's not okay because when you eat meat you're eating nothing but a dead carcass of a carcass of a animal of animal pro animal product of animal protein you're eating nothing but a once upon a time live uh uh, uh vessel of a creature but now understanding that if you look what you fry on the stove of frying the chicken, the frying the pork chop, frying the steak, you will see the blood runs out. So you're basically eating a flesh that the blood life source was circulated in a animal that keeps this animal functioning of the life source of water that is blood. So I don't eat meat for that reason, because what they do to the animals that don't nobody know what they do, or you don't know what you're eating or what was in the meat. So food is very important. Now, when it comes to um, sleeping, sleeping, you're at a state of better uh, quality of recovery. Also, when you sleep, get good sleep at nighttime in darkness, you releases, like he said, melatonin, you know what I'm saying? Melatonin. It helps you of better function of healing to recover to do what you do in this life, you know, a physical activity. So with people that exercise get sore, that's when you eat better, 
to cause one face for you to heal better. But one on top of that, resting is good to get sleep because it helps you to heal even better. That's why people have a difficulty time sleeping because they leave the television on. They leave the lights on and don't understand the reason why you're so affected of thinking negative, not realizing that the television gives off radiation. And what someone tells you, like they told me before, scoop back from the television. But understand that people need to improve their sleep because if you don't get good rest, if you don't get good sleep, your body and your thinking will be thrown off and you will have a slower pace of healing because you're not resting. And you have a slower pace of healing if you're not bettering and eating and better your diet. So lack of sleep has a negative effect. Wrong eating has a negative effect that every human being knows why they are they are sick and they know why they are obese because of poor habits of eating wrong. Period. And so many medications appeal saying take this, take this, it will help you feel better. Take this. Well, like a gov like a government uh, 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 politician said, he said. People have common sense to better to better their health. Who said that? Mick Romney. He is a Republican. Said to anybody, he said, when it comes to people, people have common sense, meaning you know what to do to stop this problem of a illness of obesity. That is change the way you eat and get active. He said people have common sense to better their health when it comes to sleeping. That means change the timing and basically go to bed a little early and turn off the television, get a good night rest. But people, human beings, some of us are ignorant. That's it. I explained to you. And America is 70% of people that's 70% of people that is obese. 70% is majority Americans are fat. One out of four adults in America is basically have a mental illness. That is depression, schizophrenia, and bipolar. A mental illness. Why? Because of sometimes what you eat caused that. Or your mother that was carrying you and her family tree of what's in the blood carry on. Everything has a reason. Now, my name is Dre Wise. Dre Wise Conqueror. Follow me on Dre Wise underscore. Follow me on Dre Wise underscore Conqueror on Instagram and Facebook. All the same. Donate 99 cent. 99 cent. 99 cent. Or more to this particular Anchor FM episode, Dre Wise. And farewell till next time. And to everyone, think positive, think fruitful, think positive, and peace and blessings to your endeavors. I am Dre Wise, Dre Wise Conqueror. Peace and farewell. What up, Anchor? What up, Anchor FM? What up, Anchor FM episodes and Spotify? and iTunes. I am Dre Wise. Dre Wise. Dre Wise. Count you. Now, 
follow me on Instagram, my Instagram account. That is DreWise underscore countywer. What I mean by a countywer, a countywer is someone that conquers their basically their habits and come out of that and turn around and you conquer you conqueror of that. Now, and follow me on my Facebook page that is DreWise Calculator also where I demonstrate um, live footage of going live, exercising, and doing live streaming of subjects, topics, and more on my Facebook page, DreWise Calculator. Email me for business inquiries. That is Luca Darrell seven at gmail.com. And also donate nine cent, nine cent, nine cent or more here on Anchor FM episodes. Dre Wise.